Welcome our fellow patriots to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics podcast, where we renew the spirit of America by learning about what makes America the greatest nation in world history, including our founding first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers, and other great patriots, as well as flags and other key symbols of America. Hosted by Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren, named the Judge of the Decade by the International Association of Top Professionals, we continue our intense review of the Declaration of Independence. This in-depth review of the Declaration is necessary because, as many studies have revealed, too many of us need a better understanding of the Declaration, American history, and civics. And the best way, really the only way, To protect our freedom is to understand the foundation of our liberties, and the Declaration of Independence is the bedrock of that foundation. If you missed prior episodes, you might want to go back and catch up to where we are now. But if not, strap in your seatbelts and please join us right here and now. When we return, we will explore the vital sentence, quote, that to secure these rights, Governments are instituted among men, deriving their powers from the consent of the governed. Welcome back, my fellow patriots. As we have discussed, our Declaration of Independence made America unique in many ways, not only by forging a new nation, but more importantly, by announcing to the world our commitment to certain first principles that would be our guide as we move forward. We are beginning to explore the third sentence of the Declaration, which is as follows. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. The rights that this sentence refers to are our unalienable rights. Recall that unlike rights or privileges given to us by governments, we are born with unalienable rights. Those rights are endowed in us by nature and nature's God. Among those rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we covered each of those in prior episodes. This sentence of the Declaration of Independence refers focusing on today recognizes as a self-evident truth that government is established to protect those unalienable rights. In fact, it goes a step further and says that the origin of government is the protection of those rights. Listen to the phrase again, quote, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, unquote. Before we explore what the founders thought, it makes sense to contextualize their beliefs by examining other theories about the origins and purpose of government. Using large brushstrokes, many scholars and educators typically identify four major theories of the origin of government. Number one, force theory. Number two, family or patriarchy theory. Number three, divine right. Number four, the social compact theory. And that's the founder's view. But these scholars and educators skip over some other very important views. And these are number five, divine rule, number six, Marxism, number seven, anarchy, and number eight, 
evolutionary biology. Now there are a whole bunch of more minor or at least less influential theories which we really don't need to explore, but I can't resist mentioning two additional theories because they are just so intriguing. The hydraulic civilization theory was developed by German-American historian Carl August Wittefogel in his 1957 book Oriental Despots, A Comparative Study of Total Power. He argued that the key to Eastern civilizations, and then the creation of government, was to control water and irrigation. He argued that is how government, in particular despotic government, arose in ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia. Hellenistic Greece and Imperial Rome, the Abbasid Caliphate, Imperial China, the Mughal Empire, and Incan Peru. One quick sentence sums it up, quote, those who control the hydraulic network are uniquely prepared to wield supreme power." Unquote. Another more influential theory was posited by Max Weber. Weber was a German sociologist, philosopher, jurist, and political economist. He argued that the state power arises from two main sources. Number one, customs and traditions from time immemorial. And number two, exceptional acceptance of leadership of a hero or other charismatic personality. In either case, government takes control when there is a widespread acceptance of the source of the authority. Weber argues that over centuries of gradual development, the state as we understand it arose beyond those two original bases of power into governments. That happened through specialization, secularization, and bureaucratization. Notice, unlike Wittefogel, Weber does not explain how the traditions and customs or the charismatic leaders took power and created a government. Now to the more prominent theories. To begin our journey through alternative origins of government, we are bringing on board a returning guest star, our dear friend Michael Skinechny, who we have affectionately nicknamed Skin, although now he goes by the fancy moniker Mike Gerard in his own podcast, Be Reasonable with Mike Gerard. Skin, please present your first Skin segment. Thanks, Judge. And uh, fancy moniker? Hey, you're the one who goes to get a coffee and has them put Judge Warren on the cup. I mean, it's just shameless. All right, but let's get to it. So the first theory we'll be examining is called force theory. Now, it's pretty easy to understand. It simply states that whoever had the bigger club took power, established the rules, and created a system that was maintained through force, coercion, and willpower. Some people call it the conquest theory, but that's more aptly a term of art for how some nations or people conquer others through warfare. Dictionary.com defines force theory with the familiar adage, might makes right. Superior strength can enforce one's will or dictate justice. As in, the generals dismiss the parliament and imprison the premier. Might makes right in that country or the big boys wouldn't let the little ones use the basketball. A case of might makes right. This expression was first recorded in English about 1327. The political corollary of this maxim is that war begot kings. An early expression of this idea was illustrated in Plato's Gorgias dialogue by the character Callicles. This is one of Plato's Socratic dialogues, and in it, Callicles is a foil for Socrates, and clearly Plato is not in favor of Callicles' viewpoint. But it does illustrate how many ancient Greeks obviously thought. 
Callicles begins by expressing the idea that the laws are made by the weak to check the strong, and that the weak try to convince the strong to relinquish their natural strength for the sake of civilization. Callicles tells Socrates that the idea that men should bow to the rules of civilization is an affront to nature, that all the rest of these fine-sounding phrases, your conventions in violation of nature, are nothing but people's nonsense and utterly contemptible. Callicles elaborates that the truth in nature shows that it is just that the better should have more than the worse. The stronger should rule and have the advantage over the weaker. For what right did Xerxes invade Greece, or his father Cynthia, or in any of the 10,000 similar cases of the kind that might be produced? These men no doubt follow nature in acting thus. I, by my faith in law too, the law of nature. In other words, because nature makes some men stronger than others, they should rule over the weak. Over a thousand years later, this idea that governments were built on force continued to have strong resonance. Although Callicles defended the position, over time it had been rejected in many quarters. Pope Gregory VII highlighted the opposition to this view when he wrote in 1080, Which of us, ignorant that kings and lords have had their origin in those who, ignorant of God, by arrogance, rapine, perfidy, slaughter, by every crime which the devil agitating as the prince of the world, have continued to rule over their fellow men with blind cupidity and intolerable presumption. With the rise of Christianity and the Enlightenment, the idea that government could be justified by force faded considerably and was generally replaced with other theories. But the idea that might makes right has not vanished completely. German General von Bernhardi, just before the outbreak of World War I, wrote a chilling book fittingly entitled Germany and the Next War. Unlike Pope Gregory VII, he didn't believe using might and warfare was a wrong. Quite to the contrary, General Bernhardi proclaimed that government by might and force was biologically compelled and fulfilled the law of nature. War is a biological necessity of the first importance, a regulative element in the life of mankind which cannot be dispensed with, since without it an unhealthy development will follow, which excludes advancement of the race and therefore all real civilization. War is the father of all things. The struggle for existence is, in the life of nature, the basis of all healthy development. All existing things show themselves to be the result of contesting forces. The law of the stronger holds good everywhere. The weaker succumb. This struggle in the human race is consciously carried out and regulated by social ordinances. In such cases, might gives the right to occupy or to conquer, might, at once, is the supreme right, and the dispute as to what is right is decided by the arbitrament of war. War gives biologically just decision, since the, 
decision rests on the very nature of things. In fact, one only need to review the history of the world to discover just how many governments have been established, expanded, and defeated with no political theory underlying them at all. Just raw power. Well, thanks, Judge. Judge? Huh. He must be gathering up the Sons of Liberty. Well, I guess I'll just have to introduce our second guest star, Brent Bassett. He's another true patriot who happens to be a lawyer, hence his moniker, Brent's Briefs. Thanks, Ken. Excuse me, Mr. Mike Gerard. He gets his own podcast and gets all fancy. Seriously, that was a super skin segment. The second viewpoint of the origin of government is rooted in the idea of the family and its slow expansion to include a broader community. This is an ancient idea which was embraced by at least some of the key philosophers of the age. Plato, for example, really made no distinction between society and government. In book three of his work, The Laws, Plato surmised that at the beginning of time, the family was the key unit of mankind. The head of the family was the crux of power during what we would call the hunter-gatherer stage of human development. Each family had its own rules and customs, but then came agriculture. To succeed at farming and raising livestock, several families had to work together, and then someone had to be, for the lack of a better term, the head of several united families. That soon gave way to tribes, which created villages, and the villages created confederations. At each point, power was consolidated into a single person or just a few leaders. Plato specifically points to an example of the creation of the Dorian Confederation. Three royal heroes made an oath to three cities which were under a kingly government, that both rulers and subjects should govern and be governed according to the laws which were common to all of them. The rulers promised that as time and the race went forward, they would not make their rule more arbitrary. And the subjects said that if the rulers observed these conditions, they would never subvert or permit others to subvert those kingdoms. The kings were to assist kings and the people when injured. And the peoples were to assist peoples and the kings in a like manner. Plato's pupil Aristotle had a similar notion. In his work, Politics, he reflected that the first level of organization is the family. The family grows and joins other families into a village, which supplies basic needs. When several villages band together to help better meet the needs of life, the state is created. Aristotle mostly blends state and society, but has a breakout moment by adding a new layer to Plato, by recognizing that man is a social animal and the state is a natural outgrowth of man's social tendencies and needs. It helps man develop and reach perfection. He also recognized that without government, evil could prevail. A social instinct is implanted in all men by nature, and yet he who first founded the state was the greatest of benefactors. For man, when perfected, is the best of animals, but when separated from law and justice, he is the worst of all. Since armed injustice is the most dangerous, and he is equipped at birth with the arms of intelligence, and with moral qualities which he may use for the worst ends. Wherefore, if we have not virtue, he is the most unholy and savage of animals, and is the most full of lusts and gluttony. But justice is the bond of men in states, 
and admiration of justice, which is the determination of what is just, is the principle of order in political society. In other words, to civilize man, to ensure the peace, and to protect justice, a government is necessary. But Aristotle is not saying this was purposefully done. It was a consequence of natural, organic development in which the family was the basic building block. We have wrapped up the second origin of government, but it looks like the judge is now doing a 5K. So I'll send it back to Skinner, Mike Gerard, whatever his name is. Yeah, you can call me whatever you want, just not late for dinner. And you know what? Brent is a great cook, and you can trust me on that. So, you know, I'll be happy to cover for our dynamic judge. So, the third origin of government, which we mentioned in a prior episode, is divine right. This is the idea that a higher power, the gods, or a singular god, has anointed a particular person, usually a priest, king, or emperor, to rule over the society. The chosen one is the divine representative of God's rule on earth. In the Middle Ages, this idea took strong hold in Europe, in which the kings of England, France, Russia, and other nations claimed that they had the divine right to rule. Now, the fifth theory, and remember the fourth is the social compact, is actually divine right on steroids. Although the literature often mixes it up with divine right, it's a bit muddled. The more precise and accurate name would be divine rule. Those that rule with divine right acknowledge they are human and claim that they have the authority by anointment by God. But many other cultures exist in which the rulers claim to be direct descendants from the gods themselves. I mean, think of Egypt and the pharaohs. And one particularly complicated, stunning, ravishing, and beautiful creation story that establishes divine power is that of the first known Japanese emperor, Jimmu Tenno. Now, Shinto is the traditional religion of Japan, and according to their creation story, Emperor Jimmu is the great-great-grandson of Amaterasu, the ruler of the sun and the heavens. Jimmu means divine might. The Japanese islands are actually the children of the gods. The land itself is divine. The people are also the descendants of great spirits called the Kami. And Jimmu took power in 660 BC. The Japanese monarchy is actually the oldest in existence, having ruled for approximately 2,700 years. So who knows? Maybe there is something to that belief. Kazuo Kawai, in his article, The Divinity of the Japanese Emperor, summarized the Japanese state of affairs. The Japanese have traditionally regarded their emperor as being divine, and indeed, the Meiji Constitution of 1889 clearly stated that the emperor is sacred and inviolable. According to traditional belief, the emperor is directly descended from the sun goddess. The Japanese people are all in some degree descended from the same line. Hence, the entire Japanese nation comprises a great patriarchal family, in which the emperor is the father and his subjects are his children. Such a myth implies an undemocratic political system, embodying, as it does, such concepts as divine ruler, a chosen people, and hierarchical relationship between ruler and fixed by indissoluble 
hereditary ties. Now that is divine rule. After World War II, the Japanese Constitution of 1947, often dubbed the MacArthur Constitution, declared the emperor was only a symbol of the state, who derives his authority from the will of the people. Right. However, many in Japan still revere the emperor. The Dalai Lama of Tibet actually has a similar lineage. William Dewey, in his commentary, Buddhist Faith and Political Power, outlines how the Dalai Lama actually has even a stronger call upon divine power than the Japanese emperor, since the Dalai Lamas are considered reincarnated divine beings. From the beginnings of the Tibetan Empire, Tibetan rule depended on spiritual power. In contrast to European monarchies, which invoked the divine right of kings, Tibetan rulers were believed themselves to be enlightened or divine beings. According to legend, the first Tibetan rulers descended from gods who climbed from heaven on a sky rope. The emperors Songsten, Gampo, Chizong Detsen, and Relapation are depicted as bodhisattvas who introduced Buddhism through images, monasteries, and holy texts. When the fifth Dalai Lama came to power in 1642, he proclaimed a union of religion and politics, Shose Sangdrel, in Tibet. The Dalai Lamas are the best known example of a Tibetan reincarnating lineage in which each Dalai Lama is believed to be the reincarnation of a previous one, as an embodiment of the compassionate bodhisattvas Avalokiteshvara, the Dalai Lama was believed to choose the circumstances under which he would be reborn. Dave, that was some outstanding pronunciation. I'm glad the judge gave you that part. Now, a more cynical view of the Dalai Lama was expressed by Lawrence Waddell in his book Lhasa and its Mysteries with a record of the expedition of 1903 to 1904. Waddell explained how the first Dalai Lama came to power. Availing himself of the received theory that he himself was a reincarnation of the first abbot, this new Grand Lama enlarged the theory on the principle of the divine right of kings to rule, so as to make it appear that both he himself and the first abbot were reincarnations of the most powerful and most popular king of Tibet, namely Srangastran Gampo, and also that the latter in his turn was an earthly incarnation of the compassionate spirit of the mountains who had given the early Tibetans the magical food which transformed them from monkeys into men. In this way, this Dalai Lama converged upon himself the most popular legends and traditions of Tibetans and appropriated the most popular of all the mystic spells. Whether you view it with rose-colored glasses as a beautiful divinity story or from a more jaundiced perspective as a corrupt tyranny, divine right and divine rule still resonate today in many cultures. Hey, it looks like our judge is back. And just in time, Judge Warren, please take the Marxists for us. Outstanding skin segment. And now on to the sixth theory of the origin of government. 
from minds of the influential communist thinkers Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Not unsurprisingly, they believe that government arose as a matter of class conflict. Engels theorized that in ancient Greece, what he termed the heroic age, as economic divisions grew through development and warfare among the farmer, cities, nobility, and slaves, that the old communal customs were insufficient to maintain order. As, quote, riches became praised and respected as the highest good, the violent seizure of riches, unquote, was at risk. Accordingly, Only one thing was wanting, an institution which not only secured the newly acquired riches of individuals against the communistic traditions of the Gentile order, which not only sanctified the private property formerly so little valued, and declared this sanctification to be the highest purpose of all human society, but an institution which set the seal of general social recognition on each new method of acquiring property, and thus amassing wealth at continually increasing speed. An institution which perpetuated not only this growing cleavage of society into classes, but also the right of the possessing class to exploit the non-possessing and the rule of the former over the latter. And this institution came, the state was invented. Stated in more simple terms, the state was invented to protect private property. Turning to Athens in particular, Engels elaborated on why economics drove the creation of the government. Here was a society which, by all its economic conditions of life, had been forced to split itself into free men and slaves, into the exploiting rich and the exploited poor. A society which not only could never again reconcile these contradictions, but was compelled always to intensify them. Such a society could only exist either in the continuous open fight of these classes against one another, or else under the rule of a third power, which, apparently standing above the warring classes, suppressed their open conflict and allowed the class struggle to be fought out at the most in the economic field, in so-called legal form. The Gentile constitution was finished. It had been shattered by the division of labor and its result, the cleavage of society into classes. It was replaced by the state. If you happen to think this theory is irrelevant, ask the hundreds of millions who were slaughtered by the communists. Thankfully, our next theory doesn't have that kind of body count. Brent will cover another theory that was rejected by the Founding Fathers. This is Brent's Brief, Part 2. Thanks, Judge Warren. The seventh theory we will explore is perhaps the most cynical. Anarchists believe that government is the root of all evil. Accordingly, they claim that the creation of government arises out of a mixture of desperation, chicanery, greed, and exploitation. Emma Goldman, a leading anarchist philosopher, dramatically explained the position. The explanation of the storm raging within the individual and between him and his surroundings is not far to seek. The primitive man, unable to understand his being, much less the unity of all life, felt himself absolutely dependent on blind, hidden forces ever ready to mock and taunt him. Out of the attitude grew the religious concepts of man as a mere speck of dust dependent on superior powers on high, who can only be appeased by complete surrender 
All the early sagas rest on that idea, which continues to be the leitmotiv of the biblical tales dealing with the relation of man to God, to the state, to society. Again and again, the same motif, man is nothing, the powers are everything. Thus, Jehovah would only endure man on condition of complete surrender. Man can have all the glories of the earth, but he must not become conscious of himself. The state, society, and moral laws all sing the same refrain. Man can have all the glories of the earth, but he must not become conscious of himself. Goldman, in other words, claims that the powerful exploit religion and superstition to oppress mankind through the mechanism of the state. What a fascinating theory. Our eighth and last theory is one deeply embedded in biology and sociology. It isn't really presented as a theory of the origin of government per se, but its proponent, Professor Jordan B. Peterson, would likely agree that applies. This is a very broad theory based on evolutionary biology. Basically, it can be summed up as follows. Organisms in a particular species compete with each other and Mother Nature. Scarcity abounds, and Mother Nature is trying to kill you off. To survive, each species needs to organize itself using the best means available. Most organisms will fail and die, but some, with the right traits and behaviors, survive and propagate. Those with the best skills in a wide array of areas propagate the most. Sounds very Darwinian at this point. However, this is the leap. Those with the strongest traits and behaviors become leaders within the species. This creates a dominance hierarchy, but not based on force or power, but on competency. Competency may include physical characteristics like brute strength, but other factors like leadership skills, empathy, allowing others to win sometimes, management aptitude, and other factors are also indispensable. A brutal leader will usually be taken down by his subordinates as soon as an opportunity presents itself. The leader finds a way to create a cohesive unit. This hierarchy of competence is deeply embedded in biology, from lobsters, chimps, wolves, chickens. Remember the term pecking order? That is a real thing. Lions, gorillas, geese, you name it, it is there. Human society, and therefore government, is a reflection of this deep underlying biologic imperative. It is built in our brains and our nervous systems. It is pre-consciousness. It is built into various primordial structures that are hundreds of millions of years old. It is not a matter of choice, per se. It just is. As you can see, this theory has parts of the force theory, parts of the family theory, and parts of Darwin. And its own spin. It is congruent with much of the world. Now, Professor Peterson is actually a big fan of mankind and free will, but his thesis, applied to the formation of government, is driven by biological necessity. And now, back to Judge Warren. Thank you, Brent, for another bombastic Brent's Brief. Now we will return to the Founders. The Founders did not believe that might made right. Quite the opposite. They were not communist or anarchist. They rejected divine right and divine rule. They did not embrace competency hierarchies. If they believed that family was the kernel of society, which I'm pretty sure they did, their perspective was not that the family somehow slowly evolved into government over time. They embraced the idea 
that men had consciously formed governments with their own consent. In earlier episodes, we had fleshed out what the founders understood as the meaning of inalienable rights and the purpose of government. And that understanding is traditionally identified with the English philosophers Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. The social compact is a related idea where Hobbes and Locke are key. Since we mentioned them several times on the podcast, I think it's time that we spend just a couple of quick minutes on who they are. Thomas Hobbes was born in England on April 5th of 1588. His father was a disgraced vicar of a local parish. The elder Hobbes actually got into a tussle with another minister and punched him right out in front of his own church. Uh, This disgraced Hobbes' father and he had to literally run from the scene and it took a real toll on his reputation. Thomas was a bit more sedate. He attended Oxford and became a private tutor to nobility. This gave him great exposure to many leading lights of England in the age, including Galileo and Descartes, and he even worked for Francis Bacon. He was a Renaissance man, becoming a leading authority in optics, geometry, the law, philosophy, political science, and practical politics. Hobbes even translated Homer's The Iliad and The Odyssey, as well as the Greek historian Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War. Remember, I quoted that history in the Memorial Day podcast in connection with Percoli's funeral oration. And in the late 1660s, he wrote a history of the English Civil Wars called Bohemoth or the Long Parliament, which was published posthumously. Acquainted with vital members of the ruling class, Hobbes found an aptitude for writing, especially in favor of King Charles I in his disputes with Parliament. His works became widely known, and since his side was losing, he fled to France during the English Civil Wars. While in France, Hobbes became the math tutor for the future king, Charles II. Hobbes made out pretty well. King Charles I, on the other hand, lost his head. After the restoration of the monarchy in England, Hobbes returned home. During the Civil War, he wrote his magnum opus, Leviathan, or the matter, form, and power of a commonwealth, ecclesiastical, and civil. We will just use Leviathan. It was published in April 1651. In case you were wondering, a Leviathan is sometimes today considered to be a whale. You know, a a big whale, like think of Moby Dick. But the more intriguing definition, the one Hobbes had in mind, is from the Bible and Talmud. It is a humongous primordial sea serpent or sea dragon. It is mentioned in the book of Job, the book of Enoch, Psalms, the book of Isaiah, and the book of Amos. Leviathan, the book that is, is a defense of monarchy and the need for society to abide by the king's rule. It was not such a subtle attack on the parliament and its allies who had declared King Charles I a tyrant and beheaded him. John Locke, on the other hand, was born on April 29, 1632, so he was about 44 years younger than Hobbes. His parents were Puritans and his father a modest lawyer who fought in the English Civil War. Like Hobbes, he attended Oxford, and also like Hobbes, he was a bit of a Renaissance man. He was a lecturer, a physician, and wrote on science, economics, philosophy, and political science. Locke even helped draft the fundamental constitutions of the English Carolina colonies in America. Also like Hobbes, he had to flee England during civil conflict, but he went to the Netherlands. With the Glorious Revolution in 1688, Locke returned to England and in a much better position. Just to illustrate that point, on his trip back, he accompanied the soon-to-be Queen Mary on the royal yacht. 
a pretty good gig, if you can get it. He was appointed to the newly created Board of Trade, which, among other things, regulated the English colonies in America. He wrote groundbreaking works on education, human understanding, religious toleration, and political philosophy. Central to our purposes here is his two treatises of civil government, which were published in 1688. To summarize the chronology, the Leviathan by Hobbes was published in 1651, and the two treatises of civil government by Locke were published about 27 years later, which would be about 90 years before the American Revolution. This gave their ideas plenty of time to fertilize the thinking of the founders. Hobbes and Locke share the same basic philosophical foundation. They both believe in a single, universal creator who formed man and nature. The creator established universal, natural laws that rule nature and man. These laws are fixed. There are self-evident truths. The creator has endowed in each person unalienable rights, which cannot be taken away without their consent. They also believe that most rights are not absolute. They understood that the right to grow wheat does not permit one to steal another's bread. In a state of nature, each person was free to pursue his or her own interest. Food, a home, love, family, recreation, an occupation, a career, material goods, without regard to established rules of conduct. In utopia, each person would exercise those rights granted by nature without interfering with the rights of others. However, utopia is St. Thomas More's fantasy and conflict is inevitable without established laws and norms of conduct. Cain possessed the right to farm and make offerings to God, but his jealousy did not grant him the right to slay Abel. As the story of Cain and Abel reveals, conflict arises from man's very nature, and it likely happened as soon as mankind was mankind. After all, there appears to be an infinite number of causes for strife. Pride, greed, fear, hate, Love, vainglory, competition, desire, lust, religion, frustration, resentment, resources, power, mental illness, addiction, and jealousy, just being some of the more obvious examples. And don't forget evil. There is evil. I have seen it in my courtroom more than once. Don't doubt it. Of course, as Locke observed, a person unjustly assaulted by another may, by quote, fundamental laws of nature, unquote, protect himself, his family, and his property. Hobbes elaborated. The right of nature, which writers commonly call jus naturel, is the liberty each man hath to use his own power as he will himself for the preservation of his own nature, that is to say, of his own life, and consequently of doing anything, which in his own judgment and reason he shall conceive to be the aptest means thereunto. In other words, natural law clearly provides a right to self-defense. Locke repeatedly affirmed the same concept throughout his two treatises. Both Hobbes and Locke agreed, nature grants each person a right to defend his or her life, liberty, and property. Now, this makes all great philosophical and theoretical sense. The problem is that in real life, when people believe that they have wronged each other, the result is practically disastrous. It's nothing short of war. Hobbes explained it, most famously in Leviathan, that without a government, there is always war of everyone against everyone. 
Hereby it manifests that during the time men live without a common power to keep them all in awe, they are in that condition which is called war, and such a war as is of every man against every man. In such condition there is no place for industry, because the fruit thereof is uncertain, and consequently no culture of the earth, no navigation, or use of the commodities that may be imported by sea. No commodious building, no instruments of moving and removing, such things as require much force, no knowledge of the face of the earth, no account of time, no arts, no letters, no society, and which is worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death, and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And seriously, no one has ever said it better than Hobbes. What I think about the state of our current philosophical and political writing, it makes me weep. Locke agreed that no government equals war of all against all, forever. Locke and Hobbes posited that to escape and stop such war of all against all, government was created. That is, individuals united in civil societies and established government to secure the peace by delegating their individual authority to the collective. Locke noted that there could be, quote, no freedom, unquote, without a social compact of laws because, quote, liberty is to be free from restraint and violence from others, which cannot be where there is no law, unquote. Later, James Madison reflected the same sentiment in a bit more poetic terms, quote, if men were angels, no government would be necessary, unquote. But men are not angels, Alexander added, and government becomes necessary to restrain, quote, the passions of men, unquote. Thus, paradoxically, legal restraints are necessary to preserve liberty. By relinquishing certain rights of nature, an individual gains overall security. Without each individual's relinquishment of some of his or her natural rights to society, chaos reigns. To secure one's life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, one has no choice but to unite in a civil society that will collectively defend those rights in exchange for the individual's relinquishment of others. James Wilson, a leading founding father, explained before the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention, quote, By entering into the social compact, though the individual parts with a portion of his natural rights, it is evident that he gains more by the limitation of the liberty of others, then he loses by the limitation of his own. So that in truth, the aggregate of liberty is more in society than it is in a state of nature." Unquote. Now I've already quoted Madison, Hamilton, and Wilson to confirm that this was the view of the founders. Of course, it is also in the Declaration of Independence, and that is, after all, why we are discussing it in this episode. But, for you skeptics, if you have any lingering doubts that this was a widely held sentiment, listen to this passage written by the Federal Constitutional Convention in 1787. And just to make this exceptionally clear, the Constitutional Convention framed the Constitution in Philadelphia, and when the delegates agreed on the draft of the Constitution, they sent it to Congress. And they basically sent with it a cover letter that specifically stated, quote, individuals entering into society must give up a share of liberty to preserve the rest, unquote. 
Individuals, therefore, relinquish the right to judge and punish others for wrongdoing and delegate that authority to law enforcement and the justice system. That's my job as a judge, to determine the law, resolve disputes, and ensure justice, and not to have the 1.3 million people in my county try to take justice in their own hands. Government also establishes a military, secures the border, and generally defends the nation and individuals from harm. The alternative is vigilantism with all of its accompanying Hobbesian horrors. This understanding that individuals establish the government to protect their rights leads to the second aspect of the social compact, that the people form the basis of the government and must consent to give government its authority. Founding Father James Wilson, a leading revolutionary and constitutional thinker and eventual Supreme Court Justice, wrote in 1774, All men are by nature equal and free. No one has a right to any authority over another without his consent. All lawful government is founded on the consent of those who are subject to it. Such consent was given with a view to ensure and to increase the happiness of the governed above what they could enjoy in an independent and unconnected state of nature. Robert Bates echoed this sentiment as another delegate at the Constitutional Convention. In every free government, the people must give their assent to the laws by which they are governed. This is the true criterion between a free government and an arbitrary one. In other words, because people have agreed to create a government and be subject to it, the government has just authority over the people, and the people owe a duty to follow it. Unlike force theory, or clash of classes, or fraud, or coercion, a government founded on consent is just. The Massachusetts State Constitution, written by our old friend John Adams, explicitly states this as well. The body politic is formed by a voluntary association of individuals. It is a social compact by which the whole people covenants with each citizen and each citizen with the whole people, that all shall be governed by certain laws for the common good. In reality, of course, no government directly asks each individual to consent to its governance or to approve each exercise of governmental authority. We don't receive a form from the government on our 18th birthday asking if we consent to the government. Maybe it's not a bad idea, but we don't do it. Most agree that implied consent is enough. And in America, our implied consent is very robust. Citizens are free to immigrate or stay, unlike many other societies in world history. Individuals pay taxes, which are voted upon by the people's representatives, and in some cases directly. Individuals freely take advantage of the security and benefits offered by the government, and the government derives its authority directly from the vote of the people. America clearly embodies the first principle of the social compact. Perhaps a few ancient cities and short-lived republics operated with the consent of the people, but in the modern age at least, none explicitly embraced the principle until the establishment of the United States. But in addition to this philosophical theory, the colonists had the historical experience of living in a social compact grounded in consent. As we have touched in the prior episode about the pursuit of happiness, the New World presented immigrating Europeans a novel opportunity to begin anew. Eager to escape the cruelties of Europe or to find riches, they chose to settle in America, either as free men or initially as indentured servants, and establish societies in the wilderness. The theory of the social compact came to life in America. While Locke and Hobbes had only theorized about the origins of primordial societies, 
America became a living experiment of societies created through a compact of the governed. The Puritans are perhaps the best known example. Alexis de Tocqueville observed. Puritanism was not merely a religious doctrine, but it corresponded in many points with the most absolute democratic and republican theories. Puritanism was scarcely less a political than a religious doctrine. No sooner had the immigrants landed on the barren coast than it was their care to constitute a society. The Puritans entered into a social compact by subscribing to the Mayflower Compact, notice the name, in 1620. Perhaps for the first time in history, the Mayflower Compact placed into practice the theory of the social compact by establishing a community government by a written agreement signed by the governed. The Mayflower Compact provided as follows. In the name of God, amen. We, whose names are underwritten, do, by these presents, solemnly and mutually, ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. And by virtue hereof do enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices from time to time as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony, unto which we promise all due submission and obedience. Other colonies also established havens of freedom based on a social compact. Putting aside the shameful and dreadful realities of enslaved Africans and the killing and displacement of American Indians, and we will return to them in future episodes, the European immigrants consented to come to America and to begin a new life. They did so with an understanding of how their lives were to be governed. They were willing participants in a new social compact. Now, don't get me wrong, the colonial charters were very different. Some were royal charters, that is, the colony was basically owned by the king. Some were owned by individuals like William Penn, owning Pennsylvania, and others were set up in similar ways. Almost none of the settlers had any say in how they were established. But remember, the colonists chose to go there, and the colonies quickly had representative assemblies which were intended to help fulfill the idea of the social compact. So it was by no means perfect, uh, but it was getting there. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And the social compact was coming into reality in a much more robust way than anywhere else in the world. After the colonies declared independence, a second opportunity arose to forge a new social compact. In fact, they almost had a blank slate. The colonies had become free and independent states. The founders believed they could create a new social compact, and in fact, they did. Each new state established a new constitution that embodied the first principles of a free and just government. And a few years later, they would find yet another opportunity to do so in forging the federal constitution. But that was well after the Declaration of Independence, and it will be addressed when we dive into the Constitution. In the end, the American experience was not only philosophically based on the social compact, it was experienced as the social compact. They lived it. Some key takeaways from this episode. Before 1776, no government was founded on the first principle that governments were instituted for the purpose of protecting the unalienable rights of the people. This principle arises because we need government to secure our unalienable rights, since in a state of nature, it would be war of all against all. 
Before 1776, no government was founded on the first principle that governments derive their just powers from the consent of the people. This idea arises because we are endowed with unalienable rights. Therefore, we need to consent to give up a portion of our rights to secure them. And only through consent, either directly or through our representatives, can a government act justly. As Americans, we are very fortunate to be blessed to live in a time and place such as this that is dedicated to the social compact and not force theory, family theory, divine right, divine rule, Marxism, anarchy, and evolutionary biology. These viewpoints can result in tyrannical and unjust rule. Fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Please join us next time when we continue our exploration of the Declaration of Independence, in particular, the first principle of limited government. Until then, God bless you and God bless America. Thank you, Patriots, for listening to Patriot Lessons. I'm David Drewicki, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give those five golden stars. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google, Anchor, and many other platforms. You can also learn more by visiting PatriotWeek.org. You can find lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, on our Patriot Week Foundation page, LinkedIn, and on Instagram at Patriot Week 1776. If you're interested in becoming involved in this grassroots effort or have any questions or comments, please send us a message on the social media platforms I mentioned or connect with Judge Warren directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by reclaiming our first principles in history by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.